This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Saverin Kelly about her debut novel, End Papers. End Papers is not, strictly speaking, historical fiction. No part of it takes place in the past. It is, rather, a conversation between present and past, sparked by a discovery by the novel's narrator, Don Levitt, within the covers of a water-damaged book. Because I'm not ready to go home. Home to Lucas. Because lately I get more pleasure from spreading open the covers of a book than my own legs. Because the pungent smell of ink and the soft touch of paper. I linger here in the book conservation lab after hours, after everyone has gone off to rejoin loved ones, even our boss, who usually stays because she has a project on the side. Pausing, I inhale the quiet. Soon my hand is on the heavy wheel of the press, loosening and turning, the iron cool against my fingers. Soon I'll know if this book can be one that's finally worthy of exhibiting, or even one that has anything to say. Carefully, I free the protective sheet of newsprint and then the pages, which I printed at the Center for Book Arts earlier this week, and folded and gathered yesterday, and stacked in the press today during lunch when no one was here to see. I take a moment to enjoy the uncomplicated thrill of a newly pressed book block. Perfectly flat, perfectly compact, a first hint of the separate coming together into one whole. If only it were that easy. And now, please join me in welcoming Jennifer Saverin Kelly. Hello, Jen. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. Please start by telling us something about your background and what inspired you to write fiction. Yeah, so my background was a little bit topsy-turvy, my my path to bookbinding, but um, that was what ultimately led me to write fiction. So I was a young adult. I was working for the first time in New York City, and I had been really interested in handmade paper and um, and books as objects for a long time, but I didn't really have any outlet for exploring it. And then I moved to New York City, and they have this beautiful 
stationery store. I think there are two or three locations called Kate's Papery. If no one's ever been inside, it's just it's giant, and there's all these beautiful papers everywhere. And um, I, I would just sort of walk around there enchanted um, for long periods of time just browsing. And a good friend of mine was graduating from college, and I, w- I went there to look for a gift for her. And I found on their shelves a little bookbinding kit, and it seemed like a perfect gift And because um, we used to do um, sort of crafty things together. And so I went to the counter to pay, and the cashier um, said, oh, you're interested in bookbinding. Have you ever heard of the Center for Book Arts? And I, it was like, you know, that moment of like, you know, the sunlight shining through, you know, and I was like, there's a Center for Book Arts? I got so excited. And um, he handed me the catalog, and he said, you know, they teach workshops and things there if you were ever interested. And I just immediately got home and signed myself up for a workshop, and they didn't have any bookbinding workshops at the time. They, I think the the soonest I could get in was for a letterpress printing workshop, but I immediately went. And so that from there it just took off. I, I took every workshop I could, bookbinding, papermaking, letterpress printing, and it was really through that that I started to dare to think of myself as a writer. I kept making all these beautiful books, and I just didn't have anything to put inside because I just didn't think of myself as a writer. I was a reader and a book lover, but I didn't think of myself as a as a creator of content. So um, once I started making books and I wanted to fill them, I just I started thinking really small about um, making artist books that didn't have a lot of text in them. And from there, it just sort of, it just kept growing. My interest in writing kept growing until I just wanted to really focus on writing fiction. So Dawn is also a bookbinder. What is that experience like for you uh, and for her? And how did you come to create her as a character? I feel like for me, the thing that I loved about book art so much was that it was really accessible as an art form. You know, you go into galleries, and I've always loved art, and I've always loved books, but I think what really drew me to book art is that, you know, you go to a gallery, you look at the art on the wall, you don't touch it. Um, Music you listen to, and that's great, you know, but unless you're at a concert, you're not really interacting. And I loved all of those things, but the thing about books and book art in particular is you when you're reading a book, like you're holding it, you're feeling the pages, you know, you might be on your couch or even in your bed reading. It's like this very intimate thing that you're doing and you're, you know, interacting with this object that is this book. And it just, it sort of brought art off the walls, you know, and into my hands. And I really liked that. And so when I was thinking about creating Dawn as a character, that felt really important to me because Dawn is so much, um, so Dawn is genderqueer, but it's 2003 and she doesn't have the language for that. And so she's really figuring out what that means and has a lot of anxiety um, as a result. And when you have anxiety, oftentimes it can, it can, it can either drop you too far into your body where it can make you feel kind of sick or it can take you out of your body. And I think in Dawn's case, a lot of the times it does a little bit of both. And so I kind of saw her artwork and her um, her physical interactions with books as this way of her being able to enjoy something solid, some solid sensual experience that sort of was a stand-in in some ways for her body. 
And I don't know if I was fully conscious of that when I first started, but it really evolved more and more as I was writing that I felt like she needed something that could give her that kind of um, pleasure in, in being a person with senses in the world because she couldn't get that just from her own self and her own body. She's also an artist in different ways besides the bookbinding, but she's at a difficult point in her career when we meet her. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so as an artist, and you know, I've experienced this myself as a writer as well, when you are really struggling to hide things about yourself or you don't even really fully understand what they are and you are and you don't feel safe expressing that, it can really stifle you as an artist because as an artist you're trying to express something and so Dawn is sort of um, trying to express this thing but every time she comes close she sort of covers it up you know there's one scene in the book where she talks about having a painting that she did in her final year of school she was at art school and it was a self-portrait and it was kind of the closest she came to revealing this you know um, this queerness about her gender And she ended up covering it up, you know, I think with clown makeup. And so she's really struggling with this idea of trying to express something, some truth about who she is or how she sees the world. And so she's she's stuck and she's sort of looking outside of herself. She's looking everywhere for inspiration and it's just not coming. And a lot of it is because she's just so, so stuck. Right. And actually, even the way you phrase it gets at the issue, doesn't it? Because you don't find inspiration from outside. I mean, you relate to things as an artist, and but they really come from inside. Right. Or there has to be something from the outside that, that sparks that thing inside, you know, that makes you say, oh, I, I connect to this for some reason that I want to explore. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Dawn's parents um, are not very sympathetic, uh, which creates another layer of problem for her. What can you tell us about their relationship? That's an interesting one because I I don't want to be apologetic for um, anyone's lack of understanding about you know someone's gender or their queerness. Um, so it's not it's not that I want to excuse their behavior and the way that they treat her, but at the same time, you know, Dawn is Jewish. I'm also Jewish. Um, and, you know, I grew up having, hearing a lot about the Holocaust and having members of my family who I'd never met, but who had escaped it to come to this country. And Dawn's father in particular, um, is very close to people, and this doesn't necessarily get expressed in the book, but it gets implied, you know, has this history and is very afraid for Dawn that any difference, any difference that she advertises is going to make her a liability, is going to make her unsafe. And so I do believe that there's a part of what's going on with her parents that's just completely based in fear of, you know, they want her to be safe and they want her to be happy. And, but it comes out as, you know, a kind of violence and, and, um, and again, it's, it's a, it's a bigotry and it's a sort of anger, um, but there's also, you know, Dawn is also very confused about 
whether she is overreacted. And so there's also that kind of relationship, I think, that happens when there is any kind of abuse, whether it's verbal or otherwise, where sometimes the child thinks, you know, maybe it's my fault, maybe, you know, had I seen things a little differently. And so we're at this point in the story where Dawn's parents seem like they do want to make an effort, but she is just very unable to see what their motivations are at this point. And so it's complicated and it's messy. And again, not to let anyone off the hook, but I think that um, it was also a different time and there was just a lot of fear around it. And I think there still is. But I think, you know, you look back, it was only 20 years ago that, that the story took place, at least the present part of the story, and things were very, very different. You know, we didn't have this language. Gay marriage still wasn't legal across the country. The debate had just begun in earnest. And so I think there was just a lot of that bound up as well with her dynamic with her parents. I'm glad you raised the historical issues because this is new books in historical fiction, and this isn't in some ways, a historical novel, although history plays an important part, and you've raised one way in which it does. I'm going to get back to those issues um, pretty soon, but I also want to talk a little bit about Dawn's friends in the present, particularly Jay and Lucas. Uh, could you tell us something about them? Yeah, so Lucas is Dawn's romantic partner at this point in the story, and Lucas is complicated because he he and Dawn love each other very much, but he is also questioning his gender, questioning his sexuality, and not as, in as comfortable a way even as Dawn, if you could call what Dawn is doing comfortable. But um, she is trying to express, you know, outside of her home and her small world who she is. She's trying to find ways to do that. She's failing, but she's trying. And Lucas is not. He's really keeping everything behind closed doors. And so he is really kind of stunted in his own way and unable to meet the needs that Dawn has. And Dawn is really, frankly, unable to meet his needs as well. And so while I think there's a really lovely friendship between them and a lot of love between them, they just keep sort of butting heads because they they can't be what the other person needs them to be. And so it becomes just a very uncomfortable kind of claustrophobic relationship. Um, throughout the novel. And whereas Jay, who is not a romantic involvement, Jay is a good friend who has met Dawn in the last few years since she graduated college. It was sort of like, you know, that when you're in your 20s and you graduate college and you get your first job and you're not living at home, it almost is this sort of like time to start over and sort of, you know, redefine who you are. And she met Jay at that point, and he was just super accepting of everything about her. And Jay is biracial, and I think that there was some component of Dawn that felt like um, they had some shared understanding, not because she's biracial, but because she's bisexual and genderqueer, that that there was some understanding maybe that they both, you know, felt torn between two worlds in a sense. And so they get along really well, and Jay just seems to roll with whatever... Um, is going on with Dawn and however she wants to express herself. But at the same time, Dawn is so self-involved during the time of the novel and so anxious, you know, and trying to figure out who she is that I also think that these relationships serve to be a sort of mirror for her, you know, or an acknowledgement to the reader that like, you know, Dawn is, is struggling and Dawn is looking for empathy from the whole world, but not really great at giving it. And so I think, 
you know, the tension that she ultimately goes through with Jay, I think is a way for her to have to grow a little bit as well. So, and with Lucas too, you know, and realizing that, um, that he's not going to be able to give her what she wants. And she could either be angry about that or she could accept it, you know, and at some point I think she, she does come to accept that. Our segue into the past, or at least our sense that the past is going to be important, really starts in um, Chapter 2, where Dunn is given a book to repair, and she finds something between the end papers. Uh, so explain what it is that she finds. She, it's, it's glued under um, the end paper in the back of the book that's glued down to the inside of the back cover. And what she finds under there is the torn-off cover of a 1950s lesbian pulp novel. And the cover shows an illustration, a very campy illustration, of a woman holding a handheld mirror and looking into it. And, and the reflection in the mirror shows a man's face. And so that first captures Dawn's attention, and she turns it over. And on the back of this book cover is a letter, handwritten in German. So that's what she finds under the end paper. And she's compelled to translate it. I was going to ask you what drives that hunt first, but in fact, I think we've already hinted at it because this is the stimulus from outside that speaks to something inside her. Yeah, she sees it, and she can tell only that it's a love letter by the words she recognizes, and she can tell that it's, you know, it's also with the context, she can tell that it's a letter, a love letter from one girl to another girl, and so assuming that it's a romantic letter. And the combination of what she sees on the cover, the picture, which leads her to think maybe this was about somebody who is more than, you know, just queer, but maybe questioning gender, um, combined with that letter makes her start to feel like it was, um, I don't want to say destiny or fate, but this idea, you know, when you find something at a time when you're struggling with a certain issue and then you find something that seems to speak to that issue just really starts to make her feel like it wasn't an accident that she found it and that if she pursued, you know, translating the letter, maybe even finding out who wrote it, how things turned out for them, that it would be a way for her to envision a future or possible path for herself. And so it doesn't really make a lot of logical sense, but she, again, this is 2003, where we don't have words in the mainstream like non-binary, we don't have people talking about they, them pronouns, and bisexual people were not really um, fully accepted in the LGBTQ community because there was a lot of internal fear um, that bisexual people were just using um, gays and lesbians and that they weren't really going to commit, you know, that they just weren't, um, it was unsafe, right? And so Dawn didn't really have a community or a way to see herself or speak about herself. And so when she saw this image combined with this letter, that was sort of her way of saying, maybe I can finally figure out something about, you know, how I fit into the world. Um, and so she becomes a bit obsessed with that. Yes, I thought that was an interesting element of the novel, that there was this discrimination even within the queer community against bisexuals. And 
you can understand it, uh, especially in the climate that you're talking about, and which we're going to talk about even more in terms of the 1950s. But at the same time, when I was reading it, I was thinking, my gosh, the, you know, we always find something <laughs> as humans. <laughs> And, you know, and I understand in the sense that, like, when you have your, when you're part of a marginalized group and you have your community, you want to feel safe and you want to feel like this is your space and you need to protect that space. And so I completely 100% respect that um, impulse. But I also am really grateful, you know, as a person who identifies as, well, I've identified as bisexual now, I would identify as pansexual. Like, I'm really grateful that the queer community has sort of, as a whole, not everywhere and not everyone, but as a whole seems to have um, opened up to accepting more people who identify as queer in all different ways. And so I I personally think that that's a a good thing. But again, I also understand the need to protect, you know, a space that feels like it's under threat because it is, you know, so. Dawn does set off to track this letter writer, and she finds a woman named Gertrude Kleber. Tell us what you want us to know about Gertrude, because obviously you don't want us to know everything. Um, Gertrude, Gertrude, I love Gertrude so much. She, she is somebody who didn't expect to be found, um, thought that the letter was gone, and definitely didn't expect to be found at that point in her life, and um, had some... I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what to say so as not to give too much away, but I feel like she has a very interesting mixture between restraint and intimacy that she ends up sort of expressing to Dawn. And so they get as close as circumstances will allow them to get and Dawn learns that, you know, as much as she's feeling like any difference is a liability in post 9-11 New York, which is when her story takes place, that, again, only a few decades prior, when Gertrude was coming of age, it was illegal. It was illegal um, and very dangerous to be queer, and so, at least for some people. Um, And so it's a real, I mean, you know this, I think, as a member of the queer community. You understand it intellectually. But when Dawn meets this person, I think it has a real impact on her. Um, so I think, that's, I think I can say that without spoiling too much, right? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Well, one thing we might talk about a little bit is that Gertrude also has a connection with the Holocaust. Just like... um... Dawn's parents. Could you tell us a little bit about her father? Yeah, so Dawn actually is from Germany. Uh, not Dawn, I'm sorry. Gertrude is from Germany and ha- escaped there um, because of the Holocaust. Her father was a bookbinder, and it was a fellow craftsman that helped them escape from Germany when it when it became clear that it was not safe for them to stay. And so her father moved them all to the States where he ended up working as a bookbinder at a bindery in New York City. And Gertrude was a teenager at the time. 
And so she's growing up, you know, that here they are, they escaped from Germany. She's growing up and realizes that she's queer. And, you know, of course, they had just escaped Germany because they were in danger. And that was not something that she was eager to express. Tell us about the Sapphic Warriors. Are they based on something historical or are they entirely your invention? They are entirely my invention. Um, I I just wanted to show, I wanted Gertrude to have some connection to what Dawn is doing. And Gertrude was not an artist and she didn't want to be a bookbinder necessarily, but she used her father's bindery to hide the pulp novels that she and her friends were reading with um, covers from other books that had come off and were on the bindery floor. And so, and also they made their own books and she would go to the bindery to bind those books that the Sapphic Warriors ended up making. So it's this little club that she formed to sort of um, behind the scenes, you know, again, without wanting to stay anonymous, but also wanting to feel proud, find a way to feel proud without being completely open about who she was. And so the Sapphic Warriors were this group of teenage girls that were lesbians, and they were, you know, writing their own stories and reading the, the pulps that were out, and they were sort of determined to um, to be heard. And that was really my... I wanted that sort of contrast to Dawn. Um, but also, it again, at the risk of spoiling anything, it, it ends up not turning out very well for Gertrude at that time because of it was the 1950s, and um, that was just the reality, and they were just some some girls who didn't really know what they were doing. Um, so they, they weren't organized in any real official way, and so it, it didn't end well for them. But um, I just I, I, I felt like I wanted Gertrude to be this sort of mixture of inspiration for Dawn and also um, a little bit of clarity about what really was at stake at that time and so to show that balance you know and how Gertrude navigated that balance and have Dawn have something to compare herself against um, but also to really appreciate Gertrude and everything that she went through and to understand that she's part of this this sort of history you know of queer people who have sort of and they're all in their own ways, whether small or large, you know, blazed a path for Dawn to be able to then make her artwork and stand up and be more proud of who she is. And so all of that sort of went into my thoughts about Gertrude and the Sapphic Warriors and kind of what I wanted her to be, um, both for herself and for, for Dawn. One of the elements I thought was interesting about these pulp novels is that they were not actually very um, supportive of queerness, or they certainly weren't celebrating it. They, they were quite derogatory in some ways. Yes. Yes, that was a huge thing, and it was because of the moral requirements of the time that any books like that would never have even made it out of the bindery door. Um, so what happened was it was at a time because of the Industrial Revolution where books could suddenly be made <clears throat> excuse me, books could suddenly be made very cheaply and sold for very cheap. And so people were buying books about everything. And it was really, again, because of the moral requirements of the time, it was a little bit of a um, scandal. But people were buying crime novels and, um, you know, reading about all sorts of things that they would not have read about before. And so publishers saw an opening 
to publish these queer books that they knew people would want, but they had to make them have these terrible endings, you know, people committing suicide and becoming drug addicts and because it was the only way, again, that they would be allowed to ever see the light of day. And so queer people were reading them, and in some ways this was, you know, horrible, but in other ways it was also the first time that they saw themselves depicted in any way, shape, or form in popular culture. And it also provided a way for people who didn't go to the bars for one reason or another, which was really the main way that um, queer people met each other. And if you were too young or you didn't live near one or whatever it was, it became a way for, for queer people to find each other. So even though that wasn't the the point of these books and, you know, anyone who objected to them would, would hate to think that, but that was what they ended up doing. So even though they were terrible, they had this really interesting and positive um, influence that I didn't know about until I did my research. I always just thought they were terrible. And then I did this research and it made me realize how, how um, important they were at that time for bringing people together. It is wonderfully Victorian, isn't it, with the bad children getting chased and eaten by bears sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's a little bit, it's funny is probably not the right word, but it's certainly a little strange. Um, a rather more terrifying is what's called the Lavender Scare, which I think many people don't realize uh, existed, although I'm sure they all know about the uh, Red Scare that was occurring around the same time in the 1950s. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the Lavender Scare, I was really shocked that I didn't know as much about it or much about it at all um, until I did my research and was the first thing I was shocked to learn is how much longer it actually lasted than the Red Scare. And it went through the Cold War. And it was basically at that time, um, mostly the FBI, led by the FBI, and the idea being that the Red Scare had sort of put all of this fear of communism, you know, in people's minds and in the government's minds. And so the logic went that anyone who was a homosexual or who was even suspected of being a homosexual, um, again, the argument went that their minds were twisted. And because they obviously had twisted minds, they were easy to manipulate and could be compromised by communists. They could be, you know, influenced by communists. So anyone who was gay or who was suspected of being gay was to be purged from federal employment. And you think about that and it's, you know, oh, federal employment, but federal employment covers a lot of different kinds of jobs and it also covers the entire country. So again, your livelihood at that time depends on your job and oftentimes, and especially, you know, men were working, women were not. And so you have all these people losing their jobs without due process without fair trials. Um, Oftentimes people weren't even allowed to speak at their own trials and they were being accused. You had um, surveillance of people um, and a lot of this went completely undocumented. And so, um, and later a lot of documents that they did keep were burned. So they were destroyed. And so all of this was happening mostly in secret um, and it was destroying thousands and thousands of lives. And, you know, people were even committing suicide because they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't go anywhere to get a new job. Um, Their lives were just ruined. So the scope and the scale of it was just enormous. And so, again, I'm just 
shocked that we don't didn't learn about that when I was growing up in school, but we definitely learned about the Red Scare at that time. So when I was doing this research and, you know, Gertrude was living during that time and so it was just very dangerous. You know, her father um, wasn't working for the government, but as a bookbinder, they were taking on a lot of government work. And so he could have been um, vulnerable as well had anybody found out that Gertrude was doing what she was doing. Um, so when Dawn finds out about this, Dawn is, is horrified, you know, and angered that this isn't taught in schools. And it really makes her more... It gives her more motivation to try to understand Gertrude's story and find a way to tell it because she feels like, you know, the the point of the Lavender Scare was to basically erase people and then erase any evidence of what had happened. And so her idea is that she doesn't want Gertrude to be erased um, or anyone else. And so she, it, it really motivates her to do her own work, you know, to do her own artwork and in a way to tell Gertrude's story, although that's not she doesn't fully tell Gertrude's story, but that's a that's a matter for <laughs> I think that's that's better explained in the book. Um, but that's basically it motivates her. It, it hugely motivates her to by the end, I think, gives her hope that what she's doing is worth it. What she's trying to do is worth it. We've talked a little bit about um Jay and Lucas. Uh Dawn also has to come back to the present for a moment, Dawn also has uh friendships uh, in the form of Amina and Catherine is more a boss than a friend, but they, they, but the pair of them support Don's search in different ways. So how would you describe them and their roles in the novel? I think that Don, you know, because of her relationship with her parents, because of, you know, other experiences in her life where when she has tried to be more herself, she's been rejected. She is somewhat rightly so, um, operates under the assumption that, you know, if people know who she really is, they won't like her or they'll reject her. And so she's very defensive and she expects the worst from people. Um, and Amina and Catherine, like Amina in some ways is, is just a more open person throughout the whole book and somebody that Dawn is really keeping at arm's length and has to realize that this person is trying to be my friend and I'm not allowing it. And so slowly, over the course of the book, Dawn lets her in a little bit more. And, I, and that's, to me, not the only function of, of that character, but that's, that's a big piece in terms of, like, the relationship to Dawn. And then with Catherine, it's a little bit opposite, where Catherine starts out, you know, seeming like a very insensitive person who would never understand because she's just very blunt and she says what's on her mind and she's not always tactful. But what we find out by the middle of the book is that, you know, she her her sort of impulsiveness and the way that she speaks don't match what she actually feels inside you know when it comes to her relationship with Dawn and so over the course of the novel Dawn comes to see that that Catherine actually understands her more than she thought she did and so for that reason feels like she can open up a little bit more in front of Catherine so there's a sort of opening up over the course of the book and a, and a realization that you know people are not all bad and they're not all looking to reject her and that you know she has to do some of the work too you know to um, to, to be a little more vulnerable and to, to open herself up to people and, and find that it's not always going to end badly so yeah 
Before we close, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the title. Um, what, what do end papers mean to bookbinders, and what is the significance of end papers in your novel? Yeah, I love this question. I had mentioned earlier that um, I, I haven't really talked about this yet, and so I really thought about that when I saw that you wanted to ask me that question, and I, I think my answer is different now than it would have been as I was drafting the book. And, you know, for bookbinders, they're really it's, it's a functional thing. It's part of how the book is attached to the cover, but it also is can be a decorative thing. And so there are people who um, make their own end papers. You know, um, my old boss actually wrote a whole, she did a whole bunch of research and wrote a book all about decorative papers. They're not necessarily end papers, but there's a sort of fascination with them, I think, because they, they're both functional and decorative and they, they can tell part of the story right away when you open up the book to the end paper. It, it's sort of like the first thing that you might see. And so you have an opportunity to set the tone for the book or, you know, tell something about the story with the end papers. So they really are fascinating. And for the book, I think the part of my answer that has evolved over time is that they also represent the beginning and the end, right? Again, like I said, the first thing you see, but also the last thing you see before you close the book. And in this case, what I have realized over the years and in thinking this through is that because Dawn finds this letter under the end papers at the back of this book, in a way it's like that's not the end of the story of that book. It's really just the beginning of another one. And so I really like that idea that, you know, the book is done, but there's this whole other story under the end paper um, that she's going to dig into now. Um, and so the book, my book, <laughs> starts at the end of that book, but it it's the beginning of, yeah, the beginning of Dawn's story. So I love that. Thank you. What would you like people to take away from end papers? Hope, hope, just one word. Um, I think we need hope so much right now. And I think that even though Dawn's story doesn't necessarily wrap up with a tidy bow, that I hope that readers leave the book feeling like there's hope, not just for Dawn, but for people. You know, there's hope that we, um, that we're going to evolve, that we're going to understand one another and that there will be a place you know, there will be a place for us. And I know that's a little twee or naive, but that's that's the message, and that's what I hope that people will take away. Great. Uh, this book came out earlier this year. Are you already working on something new? I am. I am working on something new, and I'm very excited about it. It's a... So this one takes place in the past, and my next one takes place in the future, the, the very near future. Um, so I'm... I'm interested in that now, sort of moving ahead, looking at our current moment and thinking about what the future might hold. And so it's um, it's a bit of a speculative thriller, and it's, it's a queer and feminist story. And um, I've been saying that it's it's got a little bit of Handmaid's Tale in it and a little bit of the movie 9 to 5 from 1980. <laughs> I need a more current reference, but that's sort of the that's sort of all I can say about it right now. It's still in a um in a first draft kind of state. I'm I'm hoping to be finished with a first draft in the next few months. So yeah. And some short stories that I'm working on too.
Well, I wish you all the best with it. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Jennifer. It, it was really fun talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for spending all that time with Dawn and Gertrude and, um, and the book. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jennifer Saverin Kelly about end papers. Find out more about them at jennifersaverinkelly.com. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.